it really speaks, I think, to the unsettled nature of the populace. Hmm. The lack of trust? No, the fear. Ah, fear creates a lack of trust. Right. So what's this podcast all about, this financial sobriety thing we're doing? It certainly isn't a traditional conversation about money. There's lots of great people in our industry that talk the traditional game. This is going to be a very unconventional conversation about those three unbelievably complicated relationships that when you put them all together, you don't necessarily think of them this way, but the relationship that you have with money, the relationship you have with your people that mean the most to you, and then the relationship that you have with the person in the mirror. You mean those three relationships go together? They do, and it's a very complex interrelationship between them. And when those get a little bit out of whack, interesting things happen. Do you know anything about that? We should probably introduce ourselves. Who oh, are you? good idea. Jim Gephardt. And I'm Matthew Grishman. I'm your author of the book, Financial Sobriety, and we are going to have some great conversations, so stick around. So what are you grateful for today? I'm grateful for yoga class. Because I actually got to go last night. Boy, what... Sounded like good timing. It was perfect timing. I was absolutely... I, I berated myself yesterday for something really silly, stupid. My son's license plate is stuck on the back of his car. And without thinking it through, right, I just... Wasn't didn't... it bolted in? The screws were shredded and rusted. So I came up with this brilliant idea of, well, I'll just take my Dremel saw and cut the screws off to get the license plate off. So when I got the first screw off, I kind of sat there looking at it, realizing, well, wait, how am I going to get the screw post out now? And I absolutely obliterated myself for that mistake. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. It was pretty stupid. It was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the stupidest things I've ever done. It, uh, so I have this character defect that continues to come back over and over and over again, and it's called impulsiveness. And it's probably the thing I hate about myself the most. And I made this impulsive decision to go fix something last night without thinking it through and absolutely kicked my own ass over it like my entire world was coming down. Hmm. That's what I physically felt like. Oh, boy. After making this mistake. Like, I'm the worst father in the world. I just let my kid down. I just screwed up the back of his car. It's going to cost all this time and all this money to take it to some pro to drill that screw out and get it all fixed. Over nothing. And thank God for my yoga class. I'd, I'd say so. I'd, I would imagine you walked into that a oh, bit of a hot mess. Oh, total hot mess. Over nothing. Literally, I felt like the sky was falling over nothing. And I had a yoga instructor last night that started the class with a 10-minute meditation. And the entire time, she was talking about the inner voice and what we say to ourselves and how we berate ourselves and how we have to be so much nicer to ourselves because there's no possible way we can be nice to anybody else if we're not nice to ourselves. It was the Timely. message. Oh, it was the message I needed to hear. And, you know, I've, I've shared this with you already. And you were very kind to point out to me that the emotion is there before the incident. Right? Happens. Right. You before the you, incident you, happens. Say, say it right. To, the emotion is there before the incident happens. Right. So road rage... When the person absolutely loses their mind on you or someone else on the freeway because you cut them off, you didn't use your signal, whatever it might be, and now they're 
They're on your bumper. Oh, they're losing they're, their they're playing what? they're playing oh, yeah. brake light in front of you, losing their mind. Yeah. Absolutely positively has nothing to do with you whatsoever. Mm. It has to do with some series of episodes that have led to the point where that was just where a spark. taking the Dremel and cutting, which I've never known anybody to do, <laughs> triggers a waterfall of other emotions that have been building. Sure. Well, and we've, we've talked about this. I mean, my, my confidence isn't at the highest it's ever been. The last several months, it's been chiseled down a little bit. And I think that was just a series of Matthew doubting himself a little bit. Sure. And it just kind of right. all came falling down with that. So my gratitude is that I have this wonderful thing called yoga in my life that helps center me, ground me, and bring me back to reality. Love it. What are you grateful for today? I'm grateful for Ace. Oh, I'm grateful for Ace because he made an introduction to a dear friend and colleague of his that runs an organization that is absolutely uh, blowing our doors off in terms of helping us with some internal strategy and some internal unpacking of what it is that we do and who we do it for and how do we do what we do and what's the what's the magic in our sauce. And I, as I've said to you many times, as I've said on the show many times, I am always so attracted to professionals. And while there's some lovely people that we've worked with as consultants and what have you in our business over the years, yeah. they've been amateurs. We've, we've met our fair share of amateurs, that's for sure. And these guys are pros. Yeah. And it's obvious they're pros. And we've, we've you and I have never had the kind of let's say, deep dive or internal spotlight put on the business of Gebhardt Group and financial sobriety. Not this way. The way these guys yeah. have. And yeah. so I'm internally grateful to Grace, uh, Grace, Grace too, <laughs> and Ace for introducing us to them because there's a lot of cool stuff that's going to be coming down the pike for our financial sobriety community, Gebhardt Group, you name it. So I'm very, very grateful for Ace today. Oh, that's awesome. So let, let's pile on. And the power more. and the power of relationship. That's what we're all about. That's what this introduction with Jeff is all about. And oh, Absolutely. Well, let, let, I mean, while we're on the ACE subject and gratitude for ACE and the pros that he's introducing us to, let's pile on a little bit. I'm also grateful for one other pro that he introduced us to who's been in studio now with us a couple of times, and that's our friend Joyce Michael Flint. Oh, yeah. I am so grateful for your friendship with her that led to us having a friendship with her to the point that she's been so generous to come into studio and talk with us about our community and our world and connecting the dots between our world and her world, right? Her Joyce's world of, of post-traumatic growth through her company, Metahab, and then helping us connect the dots between some of these personal experiences that you and I have both had with money that have caused significant amounts of trauma in no, our lives. No, there's no... There's ah, no... Just, there's no trauma when it comes to money. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> and just my gratitude for her. The fact that money experiences cause trauma and there is a way to heal that trauma and move past that trauma and integrate that trauma into becoming a more resilient human being. I have tons of gratitude. So uh, one more plug. We had Joyce in studio for our last couple episodes. She's got an incredible event coming up that up you can, at Sac State. Yeah. If you go to our website, yourfinancialsobriety.com, Saturday, April 29th from 830 in the morning till 4 p.m. 
Joyce is hosting a phenomenal event all on post-traumatic growth. She's got incredible speakers. I highly recommend, if you loved our last couple episodes with Dr. Joyce, go to the website. And go spend some time with her and and the pros that she's pulling together. The lineup is pretty impressive. I'm excited to hear a couple of the speakers in particular. Well, I'll look forward to seeing you there, brother. Absolutely. So speaking of uh, money trauma, I might imagine that most of our tribe is probably familiar with what's going on in the news right now. Oh, what's going on? Have you heard about, like, these banks that are not doing so hot? Oh, sure. You've heard a little bit about that, Yeah, one or two, yeah. (laughs) Well, I would imagine by now most of our folks that are with us here today have heard about what's going on with Silicon Valley Bank, with Signature Bank, with some of the other banks that are now starting to feel some stress. First Republic Bank, San Francisco. There you go. And and the reality is there's 10,000 money shows that you could probably go out and listen to to get all the details on yeah, what's happening. I'd rather, I'd rather talk to you. Oh, you would? Okay. We might take a little bit of a different approach in, in how we talk about what's going on in the world today. I was kind of curious. When this news hit, it was about two weeks ago now? Yeah. When the news hit about Silicon Valley Bank mm-hmm. being taken over by FDIC and failing. Mm-hmm. What was your initial reaction to that? I'm curious how you reacted the minute you heard that news. Here we go again. Tell me more. Here we go again. (laughs) Here's another financial crisis coming out of nowhere that no one expects and is going to cause tremendous chaos. Has that ever happened for you before? Well, yeah. (laughs) But, I mean, you could go all the way back to 29 if you wanted to, right? And I don't mean February 29. <laughs> I oh, mean 1929. Like so, yeah, I mean, it's happened a number of times. But the biggest bank in our lifetime in the country's history that has ever gone under was Washington Mutual in 08. Mm-hmm. Now, very different set of circumstances. But to our dear friend Joyce and post-traumatic growth and post-traumatic stress disorder is – I was having my own flashbacks of here comes 2008 in a different package, right? Hmm. We did a long video to clients to try to unpack and explain what went on with Silicon Valley Bank and why it went under, which is a very, very, very different series of facts and circumstances than why Washington Mutual went under in 2008. Right. Yet, the outcome was the same. Right. So when that snowball starts going down the hill and it's just a snowball of fear, eh, there's not a lot stopping it. That was some of my own flashbacks and some of my own, you know, hangups. But I, I instantly had a sense of, of calm or peace because I knew it wasn't for the same reasons. This was as classic a textbook example of a run on the bank as you can ever have. And for those of you that are not familiar with it, what a run on the bank is. Let's say you, you put on your ASICs and you yeah, do you laps put, you around put the your bank. Best, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So what is, what, let, let's just start with what is a bank, right? What, what is a bank, Jim? So it's not a complicated thing, but it's a place where you put your money. Why would I want and to what, put my money in a bank? And what they can do with it is really three things. Okay. They can loan it out to somebody else. Okay. Right? So you get a, you get a pitiful interest rate from most bank accounts. Because what they do is they they pay you a pittance, but then they turn around and they lend a portion of those deposits 
to a business, to you for a mortgage, to a home loan, to a school loan, a car loan, a business loan, they loan it out. So as you're making your loan payments, the person who has their cash on deposit at the bank is getting their little pittance of interest from that. Yeah. In effect. Yeah. And they're loaning the money out at a much higher rate. Right. Out the side door. Than what they have to pay on the deposits. That's one way the bank makes money. They okay. make money on their on their service charges and, and bank fees. Fees, my favorite. But they also have a very large portfolio of those deposits that are invested, and they're invested in things that earn dividends and interest that are also generating cash for the bank. Well, that's what I was going to say. When, when I make a deposit at the bank, when I put $100 in my bank account, doesn't, in effect, that money go into the bank's balance sheet? It goes on to their books, and then they make a decision of whether they invest it or loan they it. They invest it or loan it, much like you or I would with our money. Yeah. Okay. So very simple. Yeah. And what kind of stuff do they generally invest it in? Mostly bonds. Mostly like what kind of short bonds? term, intermediate term, corporate bonds, government bonds. Ooh, government. Are those generally risky investments or generally pretty safe? They investments? are generally very safe. Ah. And what? you typically will do is you have to go to longer maturities. So you have to go out to bonds that don't mature for 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years and to by, get the highest rates of interest. And by mature, you mean get my money back. Correct. Oh, wonderful. That's what the bank's portfolio is built around. Okay. Interest rates go up, bond prices go down. Well, but that's not a problem because generally banks have done their job at realizing when they need to pay their customers back and they quote unquote ladder their bonds to match that, right? Except oh, when they all show up at the same time. Oh, hence the running sneakers. Wanting their money right at the same time. So if all of your customers and you're a bank, you and I are a bank, and we have a thousand customers, on any given day we might have ten that come in and need some money. So but we have enough short-term money for that. But when 700 of them show up on the same day. Ooh, we might have to sell some of those 10-year bonds. Well, we, we have, have loans out to the bakery and to the contractor right. and to the da 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 And the bond portfolio that we put together, because uh, the interest rates went up a little last year. Sure. So we're taking a little bit of a hit on the value of those bonds. Interest rates go up. Bond prices go down. Our bond portfolio is down in value. We can wait it out and get our principal back. But if we have to sell it today, we're going to take a loss. But all of our customers showed up wanting their money today. So Silicon Valley Bank had to liquidate their entire portfolio. Was there enough when they did that to cover all of those withdrawals? No, because of the uh -oh. losses in the bonds. Oh, so, they did, so when they sold all their bonds, they didn't have enough money to cover all of the that's withdrawals what it's, that were That's happening. what it's looking like, ah. right? So th th it's, this is so fascinating to me because I don't think in the postmortem it is going to be decided that Silicon Valley Bank was poorly managed. They weren't making bad loans. They weren't doing bad things with the money in the portfolio. You mean they weren't buying credit default swaps and all sorts of derivatives like the banks in 2008 were? Gesundheit. You're welcome. This was as classic as an example of a run on the bank where, you know, you go to a monster bank with millions of customers. Could millions of customers on the same day show up at fill in the blank? Probably. Yeah. Probably not. Right. But sure. where this exacerbated and got out of, out of control is it's, as it's kind of unfolding is Silicon Valley Bank 
had a specialty. Their specialty was working with venture capital and private equity companies, and then the portfolio companies that those venture capitalists and private equity firms. So the small backed. businesses that made up the pools of venture capital and private equity. So when some notable VCs, venture capitalists, told their clients, "Go get your money." So th this is where I've got an issue. Right. This is where I get a little confused and kerfuffled because what I was reading was that even though Silicon Valley Bank had to sell their entire bond portfolio, they were able to meet the withdrawal demands initially. 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 But the problem then was – and this is why I asked you the very first question about your reaction when you read the news. Right. I, I was curious to see how you reacted to this news. Not, and, and the word react was intentional. Not respond, but how you reacted relative to how you reacted the first time this happened in your career in 2008, where it completely caught you off guard and it's the first time you ever dealt with it. Because the reaction that we saw from the venture capital portfolio managers, the way they incited fear, mm -hmm. right? Because the bank was gonna raise more money. Mm -hmm. JP Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon came in with a pledge of $30 billion from mm -hmm. JP Morgan Chase alone, let alone the amount of money that 10 other banks came in. Yeah. In addition we'll to We'll back pledge. you. It's good. We're going to back you. Be patient. You. Hang in there. Right. So we'll you, get you your money. You got the whole banking industry coming in to do that, yet advisors were advising their clients. Be clear. Venture capitalists. Venture capital yes. advisors were advising their portfolio people to get their money out of the bank. Yeah. So it caused fear. Of course. And all of this emotional fear came in and whew, game over. Wow. Awful. The very customers that the bank had devoted their services to and those relationships that the bank was built on are the very things that took them under. Wow. That's where this is so unsettling to me I is saying. where I get so I get I get kind of pissed off is that. Had they had they worked together in the same way that the banking industry was coming to them and saying, "Hey, we we you know it's going to be okay. Right. We're gonna we're gonna get through we this. We got this. We got this. It's a super rough patch, and the turbulence is really bad, but we're gonna get through this." And yet, the very customers of the bank are the ones that kind of did them under. What went wrong at Silicon Valley Bank? that for whatever reason, that relationship didn't seem to exist because what ultimately took that bank down? Was it bad investment decisions or was it mixing fear and emotion with money decisions? Oh, I think it's absolutely the latter. From what, I, from what, I've, been able, from what I've been able to gather on the investment side of, of what Silicon Valley Bank had on the books, it wasn't that. It was the fear that irrational behavior that comes with fear, right? No different than greed, by the way. It's the same irrational behavior. But in this case, it prompted people. And, and we, you and I have clients that took money out of yes. First Republic Bank yes. over the concern of that contagion spilling and would they be impacted. And we also had clients that called us and said, hey, I am freaked out. And I want to scatter my portfolio across umpty ump different banks to keep it all below the 250. We'll get into that. What's the, two, the 250? Ah, uh, you mean the FDIC? The FDIC threshold. limit, which we'll, we, we'll get into that. But sure. in terms of this context of the fear that kicked in and the emotional response that went along with it, 
ultimately, I think in the final analysis, that's what took ultimately did him in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what really has my mind baffled is that we have these very large, very financially stable entities, the banking industry and the federal government, right? And we, we could argue their finances until we're blue in the face, right? I'm, I'm sure just by saying what I've just said, there's going to be a little controversy amongst our tribe here today. Sure. The but federal it, government perhaps not being so the most financially, financially sober, sober at right. 30-something trillion in debt. Right. Right. I, all, I get it. But we also know they have a printing press in the basement right. where they can create all the money they want hey, to. Hey, Bob. Yeah. No, 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 no. Keep, keep printing. Keep going. Get, no, no, we'll get you more paper. Just keep printing. Yeah. Fives and tens, please. The fact that we had both, well, three, the federal government, the 11 largest banks in America, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation all coming in saying emphatically, we are going to backstop all of the uninsured assets that are above the $250,000 threshold. Which was 80%, I believe, is a statistic. At First Republic. Yeah, yes. absolutely. That they're going to back all of these assets no matter what, yet we're still seeing the run on these banks and we're seeing their stock prices getting demolished. Because the deposits are coming out of the banks. Because the deposits are coming out of the banks. Yeah. What we're seeing is a complete consumer's lack of trust with the backstops that have been made available to us since— Methuselah. Yeah, since the Securities Act of 1931. Yeah, there's, there has been no time that in the history of the United States that I'm aware of, and somebody you know, fact-checked me on this and sent us an email, but since 1929, the government has come in and bailed anybody out. Or provided the backstop, or provided the liquidity, or provided the guarantee, whatever it is. It really speaks, I think, to the unsettled nature of the populace. Hmm. The lack of trust? No, the fear. Ah, fear creates a lack of trust. Right. That's, That's my take. sequence. Sure, right? sure. Because we have $100 million in money market deposits. Mazel tough. Right? We as in Jim and Beth Gebhardt? Nice. Sure. <laughs> In terms of our client base. Sure. And those are in money market assets that are very different than what's in a bank, right? Because there's no lending going on of those dollars that can't be retrieved. And they're not in 30-year bonds that get their hat handed to them when interest rates double in the span of 12 months. Well, you, you and I have gotten a lot of questions from people about what is the difference between the dollars that I have in my bank account that have this stuff called FDIC insurance and the assets, the mutual funds, the ETFs, the stocks, and the money market funds that I hold in my Charles Schwab account or my Fidelity account or my Vanguard account. Yeah, pick whatever, pick whatever firm, yeah, what, brokerage firm you want. What's the difference between the assets I hold in a bank and the assets I hold with something called a brokerage custodian? Right. Like a Charles Schwab. So the big the big difference there is what, what happens at a Schwab, a Merrill Lynch, a Fidelity, a Vanguard, a whomever that is a brokerage firm is it is actually your assets that are being held on deposit and they are simply the custodian of those assets. So they just hold it. Now, someone could argue, well, geez, Jim, isn't that what the bank's supposed to do? Aren't they supposed to be the custodian of my assets? But structurally, the bank is a different animal. The bank, by mandate, has the ability to loan that money to somebody else. A brokerage firm does not. Right. And 
the bank is investing the rest of those proceeds that you're depositing, the cash, into something that's going to generate interest, mostly for the bank. Right. Whereas the brokerage firm, if you have 100 shares of Microsoft... That's not part of the brokerage firm. It's not Fidelity's sheet. 100 shares of Microsoft. It's Jim's or it's Matthews. It's Jim or Matthews right. or Ace or whomever. Right. Right? Okay. So they are the... Think of it as more like the record keeper, the accountant, whatever you want to call it in terms of your, your own understanding of how do you record keep... Okay, well, the Smiths have 100 shares of this and 100 shares of that, and the Jones have 100 shares of this and 100 shares of that. They are record-keeping and not managing that, but those assets are on deposit with them. If Schwab went away tomorrow, if Fidelity went away tomorrow, and I had 10 different stocks with 100 shares apiece, Jim and Beth Gebhardt still own those shares in those companies. Right. They would just be That held. is a very different you just hold structural difference between a brokerage right. firm and a bank. So for fun, I'm sitting here actually looking at Charles Schwab's balance sheet. One one of the nice things for about, fun for fun, yeah. It's I I like to do things like that when I got nothing better sure to do. Sure, you do. Read 10K statements and things like that. Um, so th this this makes sense because from an investment standpoint, I heard some ridiculous number, and we're just we're picking on Charles Schwab a because they're right here in our backyard. Uh, and B, we love them. That's, they're in everybody's yeah, backyard. Yeah, they're in everybody's backyard. I heard some ridiculous number that Schwab has something like 34 million different account uh, holders account holders, with trillions and trillions of investment assets. I don't know exactly what the number is. It's a big one. But it's a big one. It's in the multiple trillions of dollars. So I'm sitting here looking at their balance sheet and Schwab's money, what they actually have that represents the financial strength of Schwab is about $551 billion. So obviously if... That's Schwab as a corporation. Right, that's Schwab as a corporation. Not a bank. Right, and they've got cash and cash equivalents and receivables and some securities that they own, securities that they hold to maturity like government bonds, but nothing in here on their balance sheet represents assets owned by clients. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, what you're looking at is no different than looking at Acme Manufacturing mm -hmm. and their balance sheet as a business because Schwab's not a bank in the sense of lending the money out and doing all of those kinds of transactional things. You can't actually walk into a Fidelity, Vanguard, Charles Schwab, Merrill Lynch office and get cash. There is no ATM. By law, the Securities and Exchange Commission does not allow a brokerage firm to deal in cash. Right. Now, to make sure full disclosure... Charles Schwab owns a bank. Sure. Fidelity owns a bank. Sure. Those are but subsidiaries. Those are within yeah. the mothership. Correct. So if I were to look at the 10K of a publicly traded bank, when I sit here looking at their total assets, that would be inclusive of the deposits that people put on the bank's balance sheet. Uh, yes. If you went back several episodes back into the fall when we talked about one of the things that the that the feds did to stimulate the economy in covid when covid happened is we you know they brought interest rates to zero and one of the other things they did was they brought federal reserve requirements at banks to zero ah right so the banks would have been in honor of my mother in worse shape at that time had there been a run on the bank cuz there was even less capital sitting around for reserves because 
they opened the floodgates to let every bank lend the money out as much as much as they could to, to stimulate the economy. Right. Right. Because a bank has to keep so much on reserve for bad loans. Generally, it's 10% is what the standard requirement is. Right. And, and they've raised it and lowered it. Yeah. And isn't that funny that that's generally what, you know, we recommend people save off the top is 10% of their savings into something so that they've got emergency money. Right. 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 Well, there you go. The hmm. emergency money ran out. They had loans out the door and their bond portfolio got whacked. It, it, it's the perfect storm. And I will make a prediction on the show today. Okay. Go ahead that this will not be the only fallout. It won't be just some banks. You're going to hear of Ponzi schemes that fell apart because people came and they wanted their I mean, it's how it's how Bernie went under. It's how Bernie Madoff went under. Right, the 2008 was, was crisis. Po, was post-08, right. where markets kind of collapsed. People were like, uh, check, please. I'd like my money now, Bernie. And he wasn't done Ponzi and yet. And he, he didn't have enough. Yeah. Right. So there, I'm just saying there's going to be other, you know, the tide, the tide's gone out, right? Sure. And when the tide goes out, it's when you really see what's sitting at the bottom of the of the pond. Right. But when the tide comes in, you know, it rises all ships. I mean, well, we, the, let's, let's that, really get going but, with our cliches but today. But the, the cliche is absolutely true here because <laughs> sure. when the tide is in, you don't see all the ugly stuff at the bottom. But right. now that the tide is out... You are gonna you're gonna see Ponzi schemes. You're gonna see other financial institutions that were a little wobbly, that you know probably don't make it. Mm. Now, they they will be backed again. They will have the big banks will come in and prop them up, but it's going to be up to the consumer to really have trust and faith in the process that they will be made whole and they will be able to access their money. And oh, by the way, going back to the Silicon Valley Bank disaster. Part of what exacerbated all of that was the concern over making March 15th payroll. In the bank? At the portfolio companies oh. of the venture capital firms. Oh. Well, how are you going to make sure. payroll? So you, you had best go down to the bank and get the cash. Well, that, I mean, so that was- Are you kidding me? Sure. Really? Well, that, but think about it. That was, that may have been what even initially started some of this. Because think about who those banks' customers were. Right. The customers of these banks specifically are venture capitalists and private equity people. How do they generally fund their projects, fund their payroll? What are they generally doing? They're leaning on banks for what? Cheap credit. Absolutely. Right. That's how most startup businesses fund all of their operating costs. And especially when the feds brought interest rates to zero back during, remember that little COVID thing that we had? I think remember, I remember that little, that little pandemic yeah, thing we had? No, it sounds yeah, familiar. You were just talking about it a few minutes ago when the feds brought rates to zero oh, and brought right. all the lending requirements to zero. Yes, I do remember yeah. that now. So all of their free cash flow that was on deposit at the bank, we could leave alone because we could borrow from our credit line to make payroll and expand our businesses. But when rates started going up, when reserve requirements started going up, and all of that really cheap OPM – other people's money was no longer available. It forced these startups to go tap their own cash to make payroll happen. They just didn't anticipate how much cash they were going to tap. Now what? Well, I think that, so you and I have spent, uh, before we, so we had Dr. Joyce in for a couple episodes, but before Joyce was in studio, you and I were doing a little kind of unofficial series on the concept of risk, where each episode we would talk about a different risk exposure that people have their money exposed to on any given day. 
with, with the idea of we're just trying to help people become aware of the risks and the traps and all the different places they are financially exposed to risk. And I think this whole environment created another risk we need to talk about that we've never talked about in studio. Well, it didn't create a new risk. Well, right. It, it did. It's created a risk that we haven't talked about. It created awareness around a risk that's was, always was, been there. Yeah, it's been on the back shelf. Yeah, but we haven't Getting really dusty. felt this risk since 2008. <laughs> there you go. Dustin, Dustin off the playbook here. And it's called, what would you like to call it? Because it's called a few different well, things. Well, we could call it this. We could call it that. I would go with credit risk. Credit risk. Good we one. We could call it. Default risk. Default risk. We could call it. Is it really default risk? Balance sheet risk. I don't really think it's default risk as much as I do credit risk. Okay. Let's call it credit risk then. What are we talking about? Actually, you know what? I'm not, I don't know if I. It's, it, it's all three of them. That's why I wrote those three names down. Because there, there's a risk that we maybe didn't see front and center until now. We haven't seen since 2008, which is the risk of I put my money on the balance sheet of a business and I'm trusting that they're managing their balance sheet properly. How about institutional risk? Ooh, that's a good one. See, if I just keep talking, you think of something good. Institutional risk yeah. seems to lend a, or excuse me, land a little bit better because – what the fear is over is that the institution that I'm banking with is not doing uh, what they say they're going to do. Not viable. Yeah. They're either not doing what they say they're going to do or they're not capable of doing what they say they're going to do. Because I don't, I, I don't necessarily think that in 2022, 2023, what we've experienced with these banks is anything like what we experienced in 08. I mean, there was downright criminal stuff going on back then. This was just simply a miscalculation of interest rate direction. And fear. And fear. That, that bubbled to the point of tipping the differential and knocking them over. Right, exactly. So there's institutional risk even when we think our bank is doing the right thing, and even I, when and, they believe they're doing the right thing. And It's not just a malfeasance thing or a criminal thing. Right, right. And that really speaks to the level of unsettledness in the world today. To me, that you've got all the biggest institutions saying that we're going to Back the little guy that's getting its, you know, its teeth knocked in right now, and the consumer's kind of sitting there with their little little wrinkled brow, their arms are crossed, going, "Yeah, you know, uh, no, right? I don't believe you." Yeah. Well, that's we a, that's the part that that unsettles me is that level of fear that's out there because let's let's face it, you and I have had. Uh, quite a few number of conversations in the last 10 days that we've never ever had before ever had before right ever had before so you want to talk about post-traumatic growth boy wouldn't it be nice to phone a friend and talk to joyce right now <laughs> because how much of this if the emotion is there before the incident happens sure how much of this is the COVID hangover how much of this is the fear that we all went through with COVID? Now showing up in a very different way, in a very different package. Financial virus. As a financial virus with all that's going on with interest rates, with all that's going on in the banking sector. I'm kind of in the camp of there's a, there's a new financial virus. Well, between COVID, between the election, between the January 6th, insurrection on the Capitol, all of these things that have caused trauma – in our society. Haven't gone away. Have not gone away, have not been properly dealt with. Well, how, don't we just like 
put them in a box and put them in the storeroom? No, we're all going to go on April 26th, the Dr. Joyce's event. We're going to learn about post-traumatic growth. Exactly. Oh, it's the 29th. Oh, sorry. I was just corrected. It's the 29th, not the 26th. Thank you, you can go on the 26th and get a really good seat, but and it's actually on the 29th. We'll be there three days right. later. Wow. It's a lot. So. It's a lot. So what can we do as a tribe, as a community, to shrink our environment a little bit? These are the conversations I've been having with our private clients the last couple of weeks is this idea of all of this stuff that's happening in the world. How do I protect myself from it? And, and I think there are some things, risk reduction ideas we can talk about. There, there are physical things that you can do to reduce your institutional risk exposure. Yoga. Or at least I think you, yoga you, is you, one of them. Yoga is one of them right? for sure. But in the spirit of yoga, this idea of shrinking your universe, shut the news off. We don't have to be inundated 24-7 with what's going on. I had a client yesterday who said to me, uh, who retired December 31st, and I was getting together with him. He's also an advisor on another client of ours. And he said, you know, I have not watched one minute of television news since I retired. Wow. It doesn't, these, are, these words are so like emblazoned in my brain. It doesn't serve me. Having that information in my life doesn't serve me. It doesn't make me feel better. It doesn't make me more optimistic. It doesn't make me want to go out and do and explore and live. It wants me to, if I do consume it, it makes me want to stay in my cave or my fuselage and hope it all works out okay. That's awesome. It was. Good for him. And it's 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 the advice I've given the clients. Out. It's the advice I've given clients. I was talking with a client in North Carolina the other day. And she started with a whole tale of woe on, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And I said, uh, uh, how much of the day do you have your TV on now? Well, as I make the coffee and I turn on the TV. Mm -hmm. And how's that working out? Well, I mean, what else would I do? Well, you could put on some music. You could have some very peaceful music playing in the, in the background while maybe you, maybe you read a little bit of the paper but not have the – the chatter, constant. the constant chatter in the background. Right. It's important to right? be aware. Yeah. Absolutely. But to be inundating yourself over and over and over and with the news of what's going on, ask yourself this question. How does it serve you? If you are inundated with what's going on in the banking world today and you can't stop voraciously consuming the cable news bombardment of information fear mongering right the fear mongering with information and opinion ask yourself how is this serving me and what are you going to do about it i got this wonderful text from my friend matt and he sent me this little text it was charlie brown and snoopy with a little a little i don't know what you call these memes gifs Meme. gifs whatever love them and it says i am at a place in my life where peace is a priority I make deliberate life choices to protect my mental, emotional, and spiritual state. I make deliberate life choices to protect my mental, emotional, and spiritual state. Amen. This is a friend who's aware of what's going on in the world. Amen. But he's not living in it every moment of the day. My favorite new find on Instagram is a feed that I follow called Positivity. Ooh. Wonder what that's about. Uh, uh-huh. And if I wasn't busy with my day job, I'd want to go work for them. 
because their messages are their little memes. They're just their little their little sayings, their little quotes, just exactly like that. Yeah. That's what serves me. That's what reinforces my confidence. That's what gives me the courage to go out and slay the dragons that we got to slay every day to try to help keep people keep their head on straight, including my own. Well, look, let's face it. The Federal Reserve, the federal government, and FDIC has said all deposits are insured. We've got your back. And this is with the backdrop of a law in 2010 called Dodd-Frank that explicitly— Senator Dodd, Senator Frank. Correct. Remove the power from our government to bill taxpayers for bank bailouts. So no more. After 2008, we us taxpayers bailed out all those banks. Dodd-Frank said that will never happen again. So here comes the Federal Reserve, the federal government, and FDIC backing all of the banks, not using taxpayer dollars to do it, but rather sending a bill directly to the banking industry via an assessment. That's what they called it. They're going to bill the banking industry, whatever the cost is, above and beyond FDIC. So what did the banks do to be proactive? Hey, uh, guys, yeah, yeah, we're, uh, we're going to be getting the bill on this. So rather than sitting around letting the government decide what that bill is going to be, why don't we be proactive? And the 11 largest banks got together and said, hey, as much as we like to compete for deposits, we got to get each other's back on this one. Did you know in 200 plus years of life insurance and annuity contracts being sold in our country from insurance companies, in 200 years of doing that, Can you guess how many times a life insurance policy or an annuity policy has ever defaulted where you actually lost your money on the policy? I can, but we should put that out to the studio audience. Anybody? Anybody uh, in with us today want to take a guess? It's zero. Not a single policy. Not a single life insurance policy. Life insurance or annuity policy in the United States has ever defaulted. Ever defaulted. At the company level. At the individual level. Well, meaning the company went bust. Oh, plenty of insurance companies have gone out of business. But what the insurance industry has always done is they've always had each other's backs. And I'm not talking about FDIC insurance. I'm talking about the the insurance industry has always supported its own when financial failures have happened. As a result, the insurance industry gets to use this word that most American consumers seem to like. It's called guaranteed, right? I mean, how much better do you feel when you walk into a retail sales environment where you're buying a good or a service and the person standing across from you can look at you and say, I guarantee it. Does that happen anymore? It sure does in the insurance world. Oh, good. Right? I'm going to do more insurance. Where if you, if you, (laughs) if you pay us X, we'll give you Y. We guarantee Y. And the insurance industry has been able to use that for nearly 200 years because of that pledge they make to one another. And you got a good, I mean, a good under the hood inside look at this at your time at MedLife. I I, I might have spent a little time at one of the insurance companies that was at the center of a lot of this. Yeah. Where literally in my 10 years working for that large life insurance company, we took over the assets of two different failed insurers where all of their life insurance and annuity contracts all came onto our books and were honored. So that that and word paid out and, and paid out, so that word guarantee still holds water. And guess what? I am really, really excited about this banking thing. It's not happening to us; it's happening for us. 
because for the first time in history, we're actually seeing the banking industry start to behave that way. Now, you and I both know what's going to come from all this, right? There's going to be new laws. Legislation. New regulation, right? Some of it good. Some, some of it fees. Some of it a little over fear. You've even suggested, like you, have an, you had another prediction. I'm not sure you want to make this prediction official on microphone, but I'm teeing it up so you might have to. You predicted that the FDIC is covering all uninsured deposits. The banks are now coming in to be supportive of that statement. You actually believe there might be a law that comes out of this that removes the FDIC limit, that yeah. takes it up to all deposits yeah. are federally insured. Would not surprise me. Okay. But that's not what's true today, right? That is not what's true today. I mean, it's true for the failed banks, but what about everybody else who doesn't have money at a failed bank? It is at a bank, it is $250,000. Well, it's, I think it's important people understand what is FDIC insurance at a bank. Yep. And also understand, how do I know if my money's safe at my custodian, right? How, how do I analyze those two things? And I think it starts first with understanding how FDIC insurance works. Yep, absolutely. So go, so, go ahead. So FDIC is a level of protection on your deposits at a bank, not a brokerage firm, at a bank, up to $250,000 per account, per registration. Per institution, Per registration right. type. Registration type is essentially who's on the account. Right. Is it a single account? So is if, it a joint if account? I have an account with 250, Beth has an account with 250, Beth and Jim have an account with 250, Jim and Emily, Jim and Grace, Jim and Grant, Jim and Jack, Jim and Mem. Ma, ma, ma. I mean, I yes. could have a lot of different accounts yes. at a singular bank with deposit coverage through FDIC up to 250. Yeah, I think there's a definitely a misunderstanding of that $250,000 threshold in our world today that people think that I only have 250 at each bank. So therefore, right, the calls we've gotten, I should spread my money out and have $250,000 at all these different institutions. But the reality is most people you and I meet have a lot more than $250,000 of FDIC coverage because of the different registrations on their account. If you own an IRA at a bank, that's a different registration. Yes. If you have a single account, a joint account, a custodial account, like you were all, just describing. All those are different. I mean, if I just think about you and Beth and your four children, and in Before theory- Before we got creative. Right, if you guys had 250 in every type of account registration you could have, you'd be pushing two to $3 million worth of FDIC coverage well, then I at need one to go, bank. I need to go shake the money tree. You too, and get and, that and, money and out. And fill, them, fill up those buckets <laughs> and get me some FDIC insurance. Absolutely. What about custodians? So we don't, we don't have FDIC insurance protection with our brokerage firms, but how can we know if our money's safe, if our custodian is healthy? How do we even begin? Is that something that our tribe can even begin to do? I, I have to be totally transparent and honest with you and say, I don't worry about that. Mm. Tell me more. I don't, well, I mean, go back to Bear Stearns. Go back to Bear Stearns in, in March, April of 2008. Okay. Right? Bear Stearns went under. But Bear Stearns went under because of Bear's funky 
Bear Stearns' balance sheet. Bear Stearns' balance sheet and things that they were doing with the investments on their balance sheet that put them out of business. But if you had 100 shares of Microsoft and Amazon and Google and Bank of America and Coca-Cola and you had a portfolio of stocks, bonds, exchange-traded funds, money market funds, you were made whole. Mm -hmm. Not you weren't. It wasn't that you were made whole. You didn't lose anything. You didn't lose anything because you still owned those assets. And they just went to another custodian. They went to the uh, the custodian that acquired them. So I, I got to be totally. I don't think I'm being myopic here, but I I don't worry about a custodian going under from the standpoint of my oh, own the, stock portfolio. Right. Let alone Our the two hundred the two hundred clients that we work with. Another way, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it almost feels like, just to bring the banks back into the discussion for a minute, it almost feels like the custodian is more like if you kept your cash in the bank in a safety deposit box versus in your bank account. That's a good analogy. Right? Because if there's a run on the bank and you've got money in a safety deposit box, they don't have access to that. That's not their money. That's your money and you need your key to get it out. True. So, I mean, in effect— It's also not earning anything. It, true, that, which is why we don't recommend it. Are you worried? I'm not worried. I'm not worried. I'm not worried in the sense of knowing that the banks are going to be backed by either some aspect of the federal government through a large banking institution or the banking institutions themselves. Yep. I am not worried about a money market fund at one of the main custodians. I'm not anxious about any of this. All right, so let's kind of wrap up by talking about this one last thing. We've talked a lot about what's going on, what's happened, the fear that's involved. When I asked you when we first started, what was your initial reaction mm -hmm. to this? Mm -hmm. How long did your head grab onto the past and try to take you down that rabbit hole before you were able to stop it from getting there? Not very long. How long? Couple seconds, couple minutes, a few minutes. Okay, five, ten minutes. So what was because I didn't. Well, what was different than when it happened in 08? What did you do differently? I had to, that I quickly that? I quickly went and tried to read and learn and understand what the hell happened at Silicon Valley Bank. Okay, now you and I have a little more familiarity with Silicon Valley Bank just because of where we yeah, live where, and operate. Sure. We have clients that have either. You know, worked there, deposited yeah. money oh. there, had lines of credit there. So I mean, we—it's not—it's not a complete random left field, unknown bank. Right. We have people who were directly affected by this. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So when I understood a little bit more that it was a run on the bank, I was good. I was like, okay. And I and I wasn't worried about the FDIC. You know, either not having enough money to back them or not backing them or Dodd Frank because. I fundamentally know that whether it's banking or insurance, that there has to be that level of trust and faith in, in the G word, right? The guarantee word. It just has to exist. You Because if, if, we, if we don't, that's, all, that's a whole different show, yeah. right? Here's what I'm getting at. Yeah. You paused. You paused. When the news hit, you paused. You didn't react right away. No. You didn't go do something crazy. You didn't no. run to your bank. You didn't go to B of A and pull all your money out of Bank of America. No. You paused. Yeah. We have this incredible tool that we have talked about at Financial Sobriety for three years now. It's the primary tool that I use to deal with my impulsiveness. Of course, it didn't work last night when I cut the head off the screw of my kid's license plate, but it's generally worked for me with financial decisions, and that's the 10-10-10 principle. Is the pause button. Yeah, right? 10-10-10 is our way of saying pause. 
right? Take 10 minutes and just walk away from it for a second, right? If this, if we're talking about an impulse purchase, but see the challenge is, is anytime there's any emotion in the room with any major financial decision, you are playing in dangerous waters. So yeah, because emotion, emotion oh, kicks in and it and will cause you to do, do stupid stuff, stuff that you will regret, right? Because yeah. we've always said there's the pain of discipline and the pain of regret. I woke up this morning with a little bit of pain of regret. It sucks. Granted, it's no big deal, but the feeling of the pain of regret sucks. So all I'm going to suggest is that if you were directly affected by this, if you were a customer at a bank that was directly affected by this or in the future, something happens that directly affects you, do we have to react right away or can we pause? Even if we have to make a quick decision, there's still a few seconds that we can pause and gather ourselves. 100%. Get some information. Yes. Talk to people that have knowledge that you trust. Yes. Take a yoga class. Take a yoga class. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the power of pause is huge. Yeah. Couldn't, now, couldn't agree more. I don't want to minimize the kinds of things we got to deal with in life, but when we pause and we can respond to what's happening in the world rather than react with emotion, chances are you're going to make a much smarter money decision for you, for your family, and you're not going to wake up in the morning like I did today with the pain of regret. And that, my friends, that's a wrap. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and be sure to subscribe. And check out our website, yourfinancialsobriety.com. Thanks again for listening today. Here to help you find more clarity, confidence, and capability along your journey into financial sobriety. I'm Matthew Grishman. And I'm Jim Gebhardt. Be intentional with your money. Jim Gebhardt is a registered representative of and securities offered through Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, member SIPC. Jim Gebhardt and Matthew Grishman are investment advisor representatives of Gebhardt Group Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, and Gebhardt Group Incorporated are not affiliated. The opinions in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or investment recommendations. To determine which investments or financial advice may be appropriate for you, consult a financial advisor prior to investing. Any reference to market performance is based on historical information and there is no expressed or implied guarantee of future performance. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Brokers International Financial Services, LLC. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Gebhardt Group Incorporated does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance.